All right, hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Tully for History 256. I'll give y'all a second to go into Moodle and get the PowerPoint today. Uh, it's about rebellion and reaction, uh, the 1960s and 70s. Um, yeah, so we're going to be talking about that today. Uh, should be a pretty good one. So I hope everybody got their PowerPoint and we're ready to go. So last class we ended by talking about the election of 1968. Remember, 1968 was a pretty bad year for the United States. Robert Kennedy died. Uh, Martin Luther King was killed. You have the Chicago riots uh, at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. And in the midst of this, Richard Nixon wins. Richard Nixon wins primarily on a pledge to restore social order uh, and harmony within the country. He calls himself the law and order candidate. He's appealing to the South as a Republican, which is the first time uh, Republicans have really tried to appeal to the South. Uh, he's appealing to what he calls the silent majority, uh, people who might have been upset by various protest movements. Because even though we mainly focused on the civil rights movement last class, that was not the only protest movement going on in the 60s. You have all sorts of things. You got, other than civil rights, you got women, gays. Uh, Native Americans, Hispanics or Chicano, uh, students, young people, all these groups have been protesting throughout the 60s. It became viewed as a very turbulent time. Now, to understand why Nixon won, you have to understand these movements, and we're going to talk about these movements right about now. So the first one is the Youth Revolt. If you go over one more. Uh, this happens mainly because a lot of baby boomers are getting ready to enter college in the early 60s. Remember, most baby boomers were born starting 1946. So by the time you get to 1964, that's exactly 18 years, time for those uh, boomers to go to college. And the thing you have to remember about college during this time period, all right, colleges tend to be fairly conservative places. Now, some of y'all might be like, hold on, college conservative? That's not all the things I've heard about, you know, crazy liberal politician, not politician, woo, professors and all sorts of radicals on college campuses. Okay, yeah, you might have some, you know, ideology that might not be super conservative, but as an institution, you know, colleges tend to have things like endowments. They tend to not rock the boot very much. They tend to be very staunchly conservative, you know, conserve resources type of places. And a lot of it is a legacy of a Latin term, which I would write on the board, but I don't have it handy. Uh, in loco parentis, um, in loco, like loco, like crazy, and finally parentis, uh, parent, and then add is at the end. In loco parentis, uh, in loco parentis basically means in lieu of parents. And college campuses existed to be like the surrogate parent for its students. And as such, colleges felt that their main obligation was to the parents, not necessarily the students. Uh, this manifested in a lot of different ways. Um, even secular schools, like even non-religion schools, had like honor codes and things like that. Um, you have things like dorm mothers. Uh, dorm mothers are probably a good early example. Whereas um, you would have these older women who lived in your dorm, and they would make sure that, you know, boys and girls weren't in the same dorm together. Uh, you know, you couldn't have co-ed dorms whatsoever. Um, there's obligations to do various things with that. Uh, there's dress codes. I remember whenever my mom started LSU, 
you had to wear a dress if you're a girl. If you're a girl, you had to wear a dress or a skirt. You were not allowed to wear pants. Uh, she found a loophole, though, because she was part of the marching band, and they would let you wear pants in the marching band, so she just pretended she was going to and from band practice quite a bit uh, so she could get away with wearing pants. She did not like that. Uh, likewise, whenever she started student teaching, this is uh, early 70s when she does, she was expected to wear a full dress with um, hosiery, like stockings. And that just sounds miserably sweaty and hot. You know, you're in South Louisiana, these schools don't have air conditioning, and she's expected to wear all these clothes. Uh, this also applied to grades. That's a big one. Um, students were not the final authority on grades. A parent could theoretically call up a school, find out a student's grades. Uh, not only that, like the military could do that too. We're going to talk into why that might be an issue in a second. Uh, nowadays, um, if your parent wants to know about your grades, they have to ask you. Um, I haven't gotten too many um, emails from parents while I've been at Nichols, but when I've taught at other places, other colleges, specifically LSU, I would occasionally get um, emails from parents asking about their students' grades or if we could do a parent-teacher conference. And I'm like, nope, I can't because, by law, your grades are your business. Uh, you're, you're considered adults. But at the time period we're talking about here, college campuses, they felt that their obligation was to the parent, not the student, and so your parents could call up the school and find out your grades. This also applied to politics, which is mainly where the student's uh, movement is coming from. Uh, the college campuses would not allow certain speakers to come on campuses, uh, specifically more political speakers. They thought it might you know, upset the student body. Uh, nowadays, you can invite pretty much anybody you want on a college campus, provided it's for a student organization. So if you have a student organization and if you want to have a speaker, as long as it's done through the students, you can do it. Um, if the college itself is making a certain speaker come, you may get into some trouble there. However, if it's done by the students, you generally have pretty broad leeway. Now, the student movement um, is inspired quite a bit by the civil rights movement. Uh, a lot of the organizations, some of the early members, uh, for instance, when you start having uh, the Berkeley thing that happens in the fall of 64, a lot of the Berkeley uh, students who get involved in this were involved in Freedom Summer in 1964. Now, they, these college students start trying to organize for more expression. They want to have more rights on college campuses. Uh, they think that students should be allowed you know, to be treated as adults, not as children. The main organization I want you to know about is um, Students for a Democratic Society, or SDS. Uh, it was formed initially by University of Michigan students in 1962, but it's about to get a lot bigger. Uh, they meet at Port Huron, which is a little port on Lake Michigan in Michigan. I think it's on Lake Michigan. I don't know. Uh, it might be on one of the other Great Lakes. Just, just know it's, a, it's, a, it's on a port in Michigan, one of the Great Lakes. Uh, they, they meet, they, they craft what's called the Port Huron Statement, which is very broad. Um, early on, these organizations don't have one real guiding principle or one real guiding philosophy, but the idea is they just want more um, freedom, more democracy in college campuses. Now, this really gets big. Uh, this picture, as you see here, uh, this is at Berkeley in 1964. In the fall of 1964, you first start having the free speech movement involved with members of SDS after SDS grows uh, from more than just the University of Michigan. Uh, Berkeley is the flagship school of the University of California system. 
And you have to remember, in this time, California is a fairly conservative state. And the University of California at Berkeley was no exception. Um, it was a flagship school. Um, it's, it's Cal, if you pay attention to sports, you know, the Cal Bears. Uh, I believe uh, Aaron Rodgers went there. I'm pretty sure Aaron Rodgers did go there. Um, it's the main flagship school for the public school system, for uh, the California University system. It is not allowing certain students to speak or um, bring in outside speakers, particularly political ones. Uh, you have some fairly left-wing groups that want to get involved, bring in speakers. The school's not allowing that to happen. Uh, basically, they start protesting. They have a large movement, a large political movement, because previously Berkeley had banned political movements on the college campus. Uh, the school does acquiesce to allow students uh, the ability to have outside speakers come in, give a little bit more free speech, and they also start relaxing rules on things like, you know, students have to, uh, parents can get grades from a student without letting the student know, other instances like that. Now, this is small potatoes as to what comes later, which is the anti-Vietnam movement. Uh, we talked about the Vietnam War a little bit last class. Um, the draft is going on in this time period. However, the draft has ways to get deferments. The number one way to get a deferment is to be a college student. Uh, this, this applies to my father. my father. My father said in high school he was like an okay student, but once he got to college and the Vietnam War started... Um, and there was a possibility that, you know, if he didn't do good and if he flunked out of school, he would get uh, drafted. Uh, he became a very good student. He, he got like four O's. Uh, he said he would have served had he gotten drafted. But, you know, there was an incentive to keep, keep studying. Now, because of this, um, a lot of the war was fought by lower income um, individuals, people who might not have had a chance to go to college. Uh, college had gotten cheaper, but it was still seen as primarily a middle class thing. And also uh, non-white individuals. Uh, the draft was viewed as biased. Also, the war was protested on philosophical grounds. Remember, uh, the war was not exactly... Uh, Vietnam was not exactly a direct threat. Uh, there's a lot of debate about whether containment doctrine is good. A lot of these college students don't agree with the U.S. involvement. Now, ironically, I do have to mention the war was ironically more popular on college campuses than it was other places in the United States, uh, mainly because most college students weren't in any immediate danger of being drafted. But the perception was, and, and when we get into this, uh, the perception is that it's ungrateful college students who are behind a lot of these Vietnam protests. Uh, it should be strongly emphasized that not everybody on college campuses during this time period, or even young people during this time period, is an anti-war hippie person. Uh, most people are just ordinary people, and a lot of them actually do support the war in Vietnam, but the vocal minority kind of gets their say, uh, gets its say. Likewise, the perception of these protests is that they're ungrateful college students. Uh, this is most seen most dramatically in 1966, which is two years after the Berkeley stuff, whenever Ronald Reagan uh, runs for governor of California, and one of his campaign promises is to clean up the Berkeley situation. This idea that, you know, baby boomers have been given everything in the world, and yet they're ungrateful, little snots, who are protesting their betters. Um, ultimately, SDS <coughs> does get a little bit more violent as time goes on. Uh, in 1968, which, as I said, is the election year, 
Uh, they take over the president's office at Columbia University in New York. That's an Ivy League school. Uh, the NYPD is sent in, and over 700 are arrested. And as I was talking about earlier, this happens like right before the election. This makes them, and the student movement in general, a very easy target for Nixon. Uh, Nixon and other conservatives, other Republicans, say that these students are ungrateful. Uh, they're causing a culture war between like good people, good, honest American taxpayers, and these radical hippie persons. Now, the, another thing which is going on is the counterculture. If you go over one more slide, you'll see a bunch of hippies on a bus. Uh, this has to go with some of the philosophical things going on within America, because these are the baby boomers. They have been given more as children than pretty much any other generation had ever been given, yet they find it unfulfilled. Consumerism had gotten very large in the 50s and 60s, and yet some people found it unfulfilling. They're like, you know, what's the point of all this? Why should I work really hard to make a bunch of money, to buy things? You know, why should I buy a boat? Why should I, you know, what's the point of all this? You know, my parents have all this stuff, and my parents are miserable. Why should I work so hard for it? Instead, they decide to go the, the hippie route. The, the idea of they just, like, dropping out of the mainstream society. Uh, these people are not, by their very definition, as well organized as something like SDS or the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, hippies are more individualistic. There's not a really, um, there's really no organization to it, mainly because it's counterculture to anything. You have all sorts of different elements to it. You, you, you hear things like make love, not war. I'll go over one more slide. This idea that all this war and anger and, and hatred in, in, uh, in human society and in, in human population, it's just we, we should do something different. We, we should love people. That's the way we should get out of uh, wars and stuff. It's not fighting and killing people. We should just love others. Uh, there's an emphasis on psychedelic drugs, uh, music, uh, mysticism. Um, free love is, is something that, well, let me talk about psychedelic drugs for a second. Uh, you have things like LSD come about. LSD is a uh, man-made drug. It was actually developed by the military, I believe, initially. Uh, however, it causes vivid hallucinations. And you have a, you have Timothy Leary, who's a former uh, Harvard psychologist who starts advocating for LSD use all the time. He says it's good for everybody. It's going to be great for everybody to do all this wonderful stuff. Uh, other drugs, too. If you go over one more slide, you'll see a sign. Uh, legalize weed or don't. I'll smoke it anyway. Uh, you know, drugs are a big part of this. Uh, psychedelic music. Go over one more. Uh, this, is, uh, this is actually at Woodstock. Elements of Eastern mysticism. Eastern mysticism. The idea that they're rejecting uh, Western philosophy, you know, Western religion. They said it's made our parents miserable. It's made society miserable. Why should we get involved with it? Uh, free love. Free love is another part of it. The idea that, you know, sexuality is something that should be explored all the time. Uh, it shouldn't be, you know, you have to be married to have sex and only have sex with your partner. You should be able to have casual sex. You should be able to have sex with two men or two women or, or three people or a group or be polyamorous or whatever. Just do your own thing is kind of the emphasis behind it. Uh, you also have, like, communes, things like love-ins. Other generic happenings, like I said, I can't really iterate strong enough that it is um, definitely unorganized. Uh, Woodstock actually happens in 1969. It's viewed as the height of hippieism. It's a three-day concert event uh, in New York. 
it's a success. However, um, about four months after Woodstock, uh, Altmont happens. And Altmont is one of the things which is hailed as like kind of the end of the hippie movement. Uh, Altmont was promoted as a West Coast Woodstock. Um, oh yeah, I should have mentioned. The hippie movement was seen to have like kind of be centered around San Francisco. Uh, it's a kind of a West Coast thing. It's another thing Reagan was able to run against wherever he runs in 66. Um, now, so Woodstock happens on the East Coast of New York, and they say, we need to have our own concert, our own Woodstock in, in San Francisco. They're going to do it in Altmont, which is a racetrack outside of San Francisco. Um, it's supposed to be a West Coast Woodstock. Now, the thing is, they got to get security for this, uh, particularly the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones, uh, if you've never heard of the Rolling Stones, I'm surprised because they're a pretty big band. The Rolling Stones are doing this concert. Uh, they want security. You know, they, they want to protect themselves. However, um, ordinarily for security, you get like an off-duty cop or something, or maybe even the police themselves on duty. However, because it's hippies and whatnot, um, you know, and they might be doing a lot of drugs and other stuff, they may not be so keen on the cops. So, the Rolling Stones make the... I'd call it a mistake. I don't think anybody's going to be offended if I say it's a mistake. Uh, they hire the Hells Angels motorcycle gang to act as their security. Uh, if you go over one more, you will see the result of this. Uh, the Hells Angels are a motorcycle gang. If you don't know, they're also known to be, like, racist. Um, motorcycle gangs are very racially segmented, and the Hells Angels of this time period are no exception. They are exclusively white. Um, during the concert, basically, uh, a little, uh, young black kid, I think he's like 18, 19 years old, tries to get on stage, uh, the Hells Angels, um, take him out, they, they, they throw him off the stage, they, they ultimately beat him to death, and then whenever other concert goers start, uh, responding to this, uh, more pool sticks come out as you see the Hells Angels beating people up. Uh, when word of this comes out, this seems to, you know, verify all the horrible stuff that people had said about the hippie and counterculture movement to begin with. You know, people are killed. Um, in actuality, the hippie movement actually does have some major problems. Uh, the first one is kind of obvious, uh, poverty. Uh, whenever you're not working, and, you know, some of them said they may not believe in money or something, but other people do believe in money, and you have to have money for goods and services... Uh, it was not unusual for people in the hippie movement to be quite poor. Um, another element of it is drug addiction. Um, drugs are quite addictive. Um, you know, especially the harder stuff. When you get into LSD and acid and some of the you know, much harder drugs, uh, they have very bad side effects of addiction. Uh, and so the combination of uh, being poor and being addicted to drugs... It should go without saying, but uh, crime becomes a pretty big issue. Not just the drugs themselves, but, you know, petty theft. Um, you know, if you're an addict trying to get a fix, you might do all sorts of things, which are not very nice. Uh, the other part of it, which is a problem with the counterculture, is actually sexism. Uh, sexism is a pretty big problem within the counterculture, uh, particularly with things like free love. Um, free love, the idea being, like, you know, oh, you can have sex with anybody... However, if a woman said, hey, all right, I know I could have sex with anybody, but I don't want to have sex with this individual person, uh, they, were, they were called like a square. They were said, you know, you're not really down for the movement. It was very sexist towards women. They're pretty much expected to just have sex with anybody. 
um, whether they wanted to or not, and that gets into issues of consent. That issue gets into issues of basically, you know, viewing people as human beings, treating them with respect and rights. And that was something that was a major problem within the hippie movement and also some of these other movements. Um, that's how you get into the women's movement. Uh, the women's movement, you know, civil rights movement, um, SDS, the hippies, all of them had issues with sexism. They had quite a bit of issues. Um, generally, these groups would allow women to be part of the membership, but never leadership. Uh, they're expected to be things like secretaries. They're expected to, like, you know, stand to the side so the men could have their say, men can do whatever they want. You know, it's better for you to support the man rather than support yourself. That is one of the reasons the women's movement comes about. Now, one of the earliest leaders of this is uh, Betty Friedan. If you go over one more, you'll see Betty Friedan. In 1963, she writes a book called The Feminine Mystique, which she focuses on what she labels the problem with no name. Now, even though she calls it the problem with no name, um, we could describe it for you because she does a pretty good job of describing it. Basically, she finds that college-educated white women, like upper-middle-class, upper-class white women, are finding that they're miserable. They're finding un they're themselves unfulfilled. You know, they've gone to college, they've had kids, they're doing all the things that everybody says is, you know, expected of them, they're supposed to have everything they ever want, and yet, she finds that they feel like there's something missing. You know, for Dane, is no, um, she's no different. She, she graduates from college, and it's actually when she goes to one of her college reunions, when she talks to some of her female classmates, fem former female alumni, and they're all like, yeah, you know, I, I went to college, and I learned all this stuff, and now I'm, you know, being a mom, staying at home, and why did I learn all that stuff for? I'm just feeling unfulfilled. And she publishes this book, and she is overwhelmed with the response. Basically, women from across the country, across the world, saying, you know what? I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only one who felt, like, you know, unfulfilled by all this. But you know what? I'm realizing I am not alone. And so in 1966, uh, Ferdane and some other leaders come together to form uh, NOW, the National Organization of Women. The National Organization of Women is one of the spearheads of second-wave feminism. It's, it's one of the things where they're, they're arguing for women's equality, uh, women should have more, have more opportunity, you know, get equal pay for equal work, things like that. Uh, they actually do have some successes. They have some successes. Uh, for instance, more women are elected into government positions. Um, Title IX is passed. Title IX is passed. That involves funding on college campuses for uh, men and women. And basically give them other protections on college campuses. Uh, the birth control pill gets approved by the FDA. Uh, birth control, that this, this changes a lot of things. Basically lets women feel like they have control over their bodies in terms of reproduction. You know, um, birth control pills make it so you can't have kids. You know, it, it now makes you know having a children something you choose, not something that necessarily happens to you. Uh, in addition... Um, a little bit after this, in 73, uh, Roe v. Wade is passed. Not passed, sorry. Roe v. Wade is decided. Uh, Roe v. Wade is a court case that the Supreme Court decides that abortion is cannot be banned in the United States. It's part of a woman's right to privacy. They can expect legal medical abortions. Um, this is also viewed uh, with the birth control pill as basically a chain for, you know, women's bodies. 
uh, changes the perceptions of sex, you know, so even if the birth control pill doesn't work and you don't want to be pregnant, you can get an abortion. Uh, the big one that people do want, however, is the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, it's actually supposed to be an amendment to the Constitution. It does get passed in Congress, however, it doesn't go through the states for ratification. Uh, for an amendment to be ratified, it has to go through Congress, but also go through state legislatures. It's still theoretically going around state legislatures, but it's very weird because I think another state just passed it, but there's really no statute of limitations on when that amendment can or can't pass, but just know the ERA failed at this time period. Just, just know that. The ERA was not passed. Now, the movement does become a bit more radical as time goes on. Um, it leaves Ferdane and her ilk behind. Uh, for instance, when it comes to issues of lesbian rights, uh, some of the earlier national organization women people aren't necessarily for that. Uh, other women are saying, like, we don't need women, uh, we don't need men in the first place. Uh, Ferdane and her ilk are like, you know, we like our husbands, but uh, we just want to have, have more opportunity to do stuff. Later, later women's movement people get a bit more anti-men about it. Uh, the big issue, though, the big criticism has to do with women of color and poor women. Um, they also feel regulated out. They feel marginalized. You know, they feel that, you know, they have to defer to rich white women in this organization, especially in leadership. This is going to become an issue. It's almost like the thing that happened in the civil rights movement and the uh, SDS is happening once again in a counter movement to that. Uh, this is rife for criticism. Uh, the idea of, like, you know, wh who's going to think of the children? You know, men and women aren't necessarily equal. When you get into the, what conservatives think about it, what Nixon and his ilk think about it, they, they say arguments like that. That really grows. That's another part of the backlash. Uh, when we get into the 80s, you're actually going to have anti-feminist women, who we're going to talk about next class. Uh, another group is Hispanic rights. Uh, I should mention the term Hispanic comes into play for the first time as kind of a catch-all term for all people of Spanish and Latin American descent. Um, you also hear the term Chicano in this time period, Chicano rights. They had made a lot of gains during World War II in terms of uh, employment and residency. However, they tend to lag behind in terms of income and wages, and se um, not segregation. Well, segregation in terms of education. Uh, they're tending not to get the same um, education opportunities, and segregation is common. Uh, the first big um, movement, however, in the vein of civil rights for Hispanic Americans is the United Farm Workers, the UFW. Uh, it's formed by Cesar Chavez, uh, pictured here. Uh, he forms a labor union of migrant workers. Uh, migrant workers, you know, people who do the fruit harvest and stuff, people who pick crops... They tend to be non-citizens and of Hispanic descent in places like California and the American Southwest. He says we should form a labor union. Even though they're not citizens and this is not skilled labor, he says we should form a labor union. Uh, they regularly face deportation. They're not getting full you know, pay because they're illegal, they're illegal immigrants and that's something the farmers use against them so they can pay them lower wages. He actually forms a labor union. He does several hunger strikes that are fairly well known in this time period to try to get the interest for it. Um, the strikes don't work. What really does work for them, though, is sheer numbers. Um, there are a lot of these um, Chicano workers in the, in the um, 
food harvesting business, and pretty much the sheer numbers is what gets some traction. Uh, thanks to Chavez's efforts, the UFW gets protections for its workers, and Chavez is hailed as a hero. Likewise, uh, Hispanic Americans become viewed as a much larger group within the United States. They're a very growing group in the United States. Uh, I want to say within the next 30 or 40 years, they're actually going to become the majority of people in the United States. Uh, another one, and this is another one which is actually a little bit after Nixon, but it has to be said because it's kind of the same time period, is gay rights. Um, Stonewall happens in 1969. Uh, Stonewall is a gay bar in uh, New York. It was almost like the gay bar in um, New York. Uh, in the, before this time period, in this time period, when we talk about the 60s, the idea of being an out homosexual didn't really exist. I'm not saying homosexuals didn't exist. Uh, of course, homosexuals existed. However, you really couldn't be out as a homosexual. Think about things like the, the Lavender Scare, which we talked about before. The idea that they're letting State Department um, employees go just because they're homosexual, and they're quitting their jobs rather than be exposed as gay. Now, as I said, Stonewall was a gay bar. Um, anything gay was deemed illegal, and so it was an illegal bar. And when you deal with anything illegal, you're often dealing with the mafia. And this is a mafia-owned uh, mafia gay bar where, theoretically, people who went there were members. They had to pay money to get in. However, occasionally the cops would raid it. That was not too unusual. Usually the cops... Um, you know, let the mafia guys know because the cops are on the payroll too. However, the club started realizing the, the mafia guys started realizing maybe they can make more money kind of blackmailing the people there so they wouldn't be outed. This is kind of what it all gets into. So one night in 1969, cops raid this bar. That's not too unusual. What was unusual is that they weren't told ahead of time. Uh, the bar was usually told ahead of time. And so what you have is people being arrested on the street. This causes a bit of a response. The patrons fight back against the cops. They're like, you know what, we're not doing anything wrong. We're just being gay at a nightclub. There's nothing wrong with that. We're human beings too. Uh, and additionally, you have... Well, we're not getting into that. What you do need to know, though, is that this causes kind of a ground spell. By the time we get into the 70s, there are a lot more of uh, gay organizations, uh, organizations for gay rights, gay promotion... Uh, we're, they're trying to be more out in the open. You hear the slogan, we're here, we're queer, get used to it, really come about. The idea being, homosexuals don't really need to be out, don't really need to come out, in the, out of the closet. They don't want to be marginalized. Uh, a, an early success they have is getting homosexuality, homosexuality removed as a mental illness from the American Psychological Association's list of mental disorders. Uh, the DSM, if you're in psychology, you've probably heard of that a million times, it's like the Bible of mental conditions. Um, the newest revision in the 70s removes homosexuality. Before this time, homosexuality was viewed as a mental illness. Now, even though this technically happens after Nixon is elected, it's still part of the same ether. Uh, Nixon is able to pull upon this as just evidence of how broken American society is. If you watch some of Nixon's campaign commercials, he's showing an America that's in very dire straits. And that's who Nixon's really appealing to, is this, if you go over one more slide, this conservative backlash. Nixon is saying the, the silent majority of Americans are seeing these protests, and they are horrified. 
You know, they may they may be okay with some of it, but they don't understand what's the point of protesting in the street. They say that they're good people, you know, they, they go to work, pay their taxes, they don't want to be part of all these yahoos. He, you know, he says that some Americans had lost their mind. Um, these conservative backlash says, like, you know, Americans have lost their mind. Um, you know, all these social programs are way too expensive. Uh, the anti-war protesters had, you know, undermined American morale. They insulted the soldiers. You have soldiers coming back saying, like, you know, I got spat on for doing the stuff that my father was cheered for when he came out of World War II. Um, it's a lot of this stuff is going on. The first person to really use this effectively is actually George Wallace. Uh, George Wallace, governor of Cal uh, not California, Alabama, in the 1968 election, really taps into this like kind of conservative backlash. He decries the quote liberals, intellectuals, and long hairs who are undermining the strength of the country. Wallace also coins the term welfare queen. The idea that, you know, you have these people that are having children just to have more welfare checks. But Nixon's the one who really utilizes it effectively. Um, Nixon's a very weird politician. We've talked about him quite a bit before. Uh, he's a weird politician. He is prone to loneliness. He never really feels like he fits in. Um, at times, he's incredible at telling some, some whoppers of lies. Um, he makes some of his friends, when he does have members of his cabinet, the one I do want you to know about is um, Henry Kissinger. Uh, Henry Kissinger becomes Nixon's main diplomat, Nixon's main guy when it comes to foreign affairs, and we get into what Nixon does in Vietnam. A lot of it is Kissinger doing his Kissinger thing. But Nixon's also able to win, go over one more slide, thanks in large part to what's called the Southern Strategy. Nixon is able to turn parts of the South, which previous to this time had been solidly Democrat, into more sympathetic to the Republican Party. The South is rife for this. Nixon, he is a lifelong member of the NAACP, he starts using language that decries elements of it without really saying racial issues, if that makes any sense. For instance, he talks about being the law and order candidate. He says, you know, I want to make sure that there are peace and order in American society. Likewise, he doesn't say anything against civil rights protections. He doesn't say anything about we should get rid of the civil rights movement or the Voting Rights Act. But what he does says is we need a smaller federal government. He says that should be left up to the states to decide. So what should get is a message very sympathetic to southern states who are saying basically... All right, you know, civil rights, we're not going to make you press it too, too hard. Uh, the South also really kind of embodies this kind of anti, um, you know, anti-hippie, anti-counterculture backlash. Uh, probably the primo example is what you would deem redneck culture. Redneck culture becomes national culture. You have things like hee-haw and other this comes out. Uh, if I were in class, I would play you a selection. In fact, I would advise you right now, pause the podcast and YouTube or find on your Spotify or whatever the song Oki from Muskogee by Merle Haggard. This probably is the best personification of the conservative backlash against the counterculture movement. If you listen to Oki from Muskogee, I mean, you're going to listen to it. 
just, just listen to it. Now, once Nixon gets into office, um, as I mentioned earlier, his domestic policy is primarily pushing act against Johnson's Great Society. Uh, he tries to turn back desegregation, not by saying I'm against desegregation, but by saying we'll leave the states up to do it. We're going to take our time with it. Go slow. That sort of thing. Uh, another thing he does is um, tries to get rid of welfare programs. Uh, he does form the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, he does make the EPA. However, he doesn't really fund it. He doesn't really fund it. He's also trying to reduce what's called stagflation. Uh, that's a stagnant economy mixed with inflation. Uh, he's never really uh, successful with it. As we get on later into the late 70s, uh, that's going to become a major issue. There's a fa fairly large economic downturn, which happens in the 70s. Now, Nixon also gets elected, if you go over one more slide, by what he calls his secret plan to end the war in Vietnam. He promises to end the war with peace, with honor, and with no surrender. Uh, what ultimately does happen is what's known as Vietnam Vietnamization. Basically, decreasing the number of soldiers, U.S. soldiers sent, and increasing the number of Vietnamese uh, soldiers doing stuff within their own country. He also makes the draft a lottery. Uh, he makes the draft a lottery. Beforehand, it was basically, you know, certain poor people. Now the draft is a lottery. Theoretically, anybody could get it. Um, they, they go by birth date. Uh, my dad was actually part of this lottery. He had a very high draft number, so it wasn't a chance of getting drafted. Uh, the draft is ultimately gotten rid of in 1973. 1973, they ultimately get rid of him. However, a big part of Nixon's plan is secret bombing in Cambodia. Remember, as part of the Tet Offensive, the Viet, uh, Viet Cong had gone through Laos and Cambodia, but because this wasn't a declared war, the U.S. could theoretically only stay in Vietnam. What Nixon does is Nixon starts bombing Cambodia without really telling anybody about it, well, without telling the American people about it, and they're pretty much in the dark about it. Uh, now, the bombings in Cambodia are lied to by the United States towards the American people, but it's a fairly open secret. Uh, the Russians know that we're bombing Vietnam. The Chinese know, sorry, the Russians know we're bombing Cambodia. Of course we're bombing Vietnam. The Russians know we're bombing Cambodia. The Chinese know, bombing, know we're bombing Cambodia. The Vietnamese know we're bombing Cambodia. Uh, the Cambodians sure as hell know that we're bombing Cambodia. But the American people were kept in the dark. Uh, when this ultimately comes out in 1970, there are a host, and I mean a host, of protests against this. Uh, the big one happens at Kent State in 1970, May 4th, 1970. So that means we'll be having an anniversary of that this year, 50th anniversary. Wow. Um, that happens in Kent State. Uh, Kent State is a university in, sh um, not Chicago, in Ohio, uh, fairly similar to Nichols. It's a small regional school. It's near a National Guard trading place. Basically, you have some students protesting against the Cambodian bombing. Uh, the National Guard is called in. The National Guard opens fire on the students. Four students are killed. Uh, likewise, the... Oh, 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 my dog. Sorry, that is Molly. Molly's upset. Molly does not like hearing about Kent State. Uh, likewise, a couple days later in Jackson, Mississippi, at Jackson State, uh, HBCU, 
Uh, two students were killed by cops for likewise protesting the bombing in Cambodia. Now, Nixon is also trying uh, to negotiate with Vietnam, Vietnam, uh, North Vietnam. Uh, the main goal of the North Vietnamese of the Viet Cong is basically make the war last so long as to be expensive. Uh, ultimately, Nixon does indeed sign a peace accord with the North Vietnamese in Paris in 1973. It ultimately accomplishes nothing. It um, keeps the same borders as it was before, and likewise, it, pro- it makes the North Vietnamese promise they'll never try to take over Saigon. Uh, two years later, the North Vietnamese do take over Saigon, and they unify the country as one country. So unlike uh, Korea, which theoretically could be viewed as a stalemate or not a loss for the Americans because North and South Korea still exist, you no longer have North and South Vietnam. It's all Vietnam. Uh, It's all pretty much communist Vietnam. Uh, Saigon gets renamed Ho Chi Minh City after Ho Chi Minh. Nobody calls it Ho Chi Minh City. It's just the original, uh, it's just the name, the uh, legal name for it. This is definitely a loss for the United States. We definitely did not win this one because, you know, communism took over. Uh, Soldiers feel isolated. And the war showed that democracy was not as easy as a spread as people might might have hoped. Now, this is not to say Nixon is doing bad in the Cold War. In fact, Nixon's doing pretty well in the Cold War. Uh, If you could say nothing else about Nixon, if I were to ask you what is the one phrase that describes Nixon's... um, public perception when it comes to, you know, international affairs, it's anti-communism. Anything Nixon does has to be viewed as anti-communist. But because he's viewed as anti-communist, he's able to do stuff which otherwise a president might be accused of being a communist sympathizer. Um, It's like, you know, I don't know, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, is viewed as the epitome of macho-ness. So anything The Rock does, even if it could be conceived as something feminine or non-masculine, because The Rock does it, it has to be viewed as masculine. Uh, or, you know, he's not feminine. Uh, so, for instance, let's say The Rock paints his fingernails. I was like, okay, well, The Rock put on nail polish, but you know what? He's so macho, that's not feminine. That sort of thing. That's how it is with Nixon and anti-communist. Nixon tries to pursue detente. Um, if you look at the slide, you'll see the word detente right there. It's a French word. It pretty much means de-escalation. He wants the Russians and Americans to mainly reduce the amount of tension. He says maybe we cannot be at each other's throat. Now, for somebody else who was not as anti-communist as Nixon, this would be viewed as being, hey, you're kowtowing to the communist. You're being weak towards the communist. But because he's Mr. Anti-Communist, he's able to produce to you know have this sort of. Um, Reduction. He also wants to form partnerships with the communists, with the Russians, where there's areas of mutual interest. Now, as I said, pretty much only Nixon could have gotten away with this. This is really demonstrated with one place, China. Go over one more, you'll see Nixon with Chairman Mao. Uh, China had been a bit of a thorn in the side with the Americans. Remember, whenever they go communist in 1949, that's part of the bad year of 1949. However, despite American fears, China and Russia never got along very well. The big super communist power country never came into play. And Nixon thinks maybe we can make some amends. Now, this move really makes the Chinese, uh, the Japanese and the Taiwanese upset. 
However, uh, Nixon indeed goes to China. Nixon goes to China, uh, meets with Chairman Mao, has tea, you know, eats with chopsticks, goes to the Great Wall, you're seeing all the pictures. And he is able to undo two decades of isolation and distrust between the United States and China. They make amends. Uh, they say, hey, we're going to have diplomatic relations. We're going to trade embassies. We're going to start doing some trade deals. Uh, he opens up the Chinese market, you know, those billion consumers. Also, he says, hey, China, you can start building stuff for the United States. Sell your manufactured goods here. Now, this is something pretty much only Nixon couldn't have gotten away with. And this is just the introduction. This is just the act one for what's going to come next. Because the year after this, Nixon goes to Russia. He goes to Russia. He goes to Moscow. Another president might be accused of being, you know, soft, or maybe possibly Congress himself. Not only that, as part of detente, Nixon gets the Russians to agree to reduce the number of nuclear missiles and nuclear bombs they're going to build. It's called the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, or SALT. Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. Basically, it says, hey, we're going to reduce the number of nuclear weapons. In exchange, um, Russia would get access to American grain at cost. Uh, I think it's like some, something like one quarter of the U.S. grain harvest would go to Russia at cost, and the farmers would be subsidized for this. Okay, we're reduced, Nixon is reducing the number of nuclear weapons and also giving Russia stuff. This is something that another president probably could not have gone away with it. And for his faults, and I am not a Nixon apologist, I am not somebody who would offend Nixon or say Nixon was a good president, but for his faults, he is indeed able to reduce some of the tension of the Cold War. And by the time we get to 1972, Nixon is looking like he's going to have a fairly easy re-election. Because Nixon's main opposition is George Wallace. Uh, George Wallace, you know, Mr. Segregationist Governor, uh, he's running as an independent. However, during the campaign, um, he's shot. Uh, George Wallace is shot. He is paralyzed. He's in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Uh, later on in life, I will say, this is the last time I'll talk about Wallace, uh, Wallace does indeed apologize for his uh, you know, segregationist stuff. He becomes what's known as a born-again Christian. We'll talk about that when we get into Reagan. Uh, he, he claims he'll, you know, do unification things and meet with any African-American leaders, you know, to apologize and make amends for all the people that he's hurt with his segregationist things. Uh, he dies, I believe, in like 92, in the early 90s, that's when Wallace dies. Uh, the Democrats nominate George McGovern. Uh, George McGovern is a very far, 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 far anti-war, uh, far-left liberal um, he's very bad at campaigning. He never really has a chance. It's um, Nixon wins one of the biggest electoral college victories of all time. Uh, 520 electoral college votes to McGovern 17. Um, I don't believe McGovern even got his home state. Like, it was bad, y'all. However, Nixon is paranoid. Nixon wants to know what dirt the Democrats might have on him. Uh, he complains of enemies. Uh, he tries to get his operatives to like, do dirty tricks. Um, there's, a, there's a group, they call themselves the Plumbers, uh, because they plug the leaks within the White House. Basically, they're afraid of people leaking uh, information to the news media. 
Later on, there's a group called the Committee to Re-Elect the President, which has an acronym of CREEP, C-R-E-E-P. That's what they're in. Uh, they're, you know, the political rivals call them is the Creepers. Um, they're not nice individuals. They're doing all sorts of dirty tricks to find out information on McGovern. Uh, McGovern even campaigns during the uh, cam- sorry complains during the campaign. There we go. That uh, he's like, you know what? Maybe I'm being recorded. You know, I think I think my phones are being tapped. They were. He's like, also I think the IRS is harassing me for no reason. Nixon made the IRS audit McGovern. So in the fall of 1972, Governor, one more slide. You're going to find out about Watergate. In the in not the fall in July of 72. It's pretty clear Nixon's going to win the presidency, but still he wants to know what's going on. Um, Watergate is a hotel and office complex in Washington. It's what's called the Watergate. Uh, It gives a name to the scandal. One night, five individuals are caught trying to break in to the Watergate hotel, well, the Watergate office complex, where the Democratic National Convention has its offices. The DNC has its offices in the Watergate complex. And these burglars are unique because once they arrest them, they find out that they're carrying a lot of cash, like a ton of cash, and a lot of recording equipment. Uh, Several of them are former Cuban nationals. I think one of them trained in Bay of Pigs. Uh, James McCourt, the guy on the left, is a former CIA guy. Now, they're all arrested. This could be a fairly minor issue, but Nixon is working very hard to cover this up. You know, this, this could be a minor issue. This is a scandal that kind of grows in time. This should have, you know, a different year could have been a minor issue. However, Nixon doesn't let it go. Nixon denies all knowledge, but he also gets his election, re-election cam- campaign um, financing, you know, his, his slush fund, his accounts for his re-election campaign, to uh, basically allow for a half a million dollars to be sent to the accounts of these guys in prison to buy their silence. That's not something you do when you're completely innocent. That's something you do when you're trying to, uh, you know, cover something up. Likewise, Nixon says the the FBI should not be involved in this investigation. In fact, he tries to get the CIA to stop the FBI from investigating uh, the Watergate break-in. Once again, when you're trying to get the FBI to stop an investigation, that's not something you do when you're completely innocent. Now, this really starts to unravel uh, once, basically, uh, more members of Nixon's team are caught up in this, and they start admitting that there are loads of dirty tricks going on, and that the Watergate was kind of the tip of the iceberg. And also in the midst of this, it finds they find out that Nixon had been recording everything in the Oval Office. Uh, Nixon was not the one who put in recording equipment in the Oval Office. That had actually been uh, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, Nixon claimed he was recording stuff for his memoirs, but basically people on his team who were being investigated for this uh, for this break-in said, "Oh no 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 no! He he listens to it all the time. Uh, he's convinced people are talking behind his back, so he's recording everything." And they're like, whoa, these are tapes. And so there's an issue of should we subpoena the tapes? Should we subpoena these tapes that, you know, it's Nixon in the Oval Office? 
and these burglars are claiming, or basically people behind the burglars are claiming, we had meetings in the Oval Office with Nixon about this. Nixon is continuing to try to, you know, cover everything up. Uh, he assures the American people that he is not a crook. Oh, yeah, I have to do a bad Nixon impression. Um, I am not a crook. That's my terrible Nixon impression. Uh, Nixon even a, a fire, uh, fires his attorney general because the attorney general won't stop the investigation because he's like, it looks like a co- conflict of interest or it looks like corruption, obstruction of justice. Uh, Nixon starts to crack even further whenever Congress starts uh, asking for the tapes. Whenever Congress starts asking for the tapes, um, some transcripts are released. They don't make Nixon look very good. Um, in the transcript, Nixon curses a lot. He looks very paranoid. Uh, he goes on anti-Semitic rants. He looks to be a very, very bad guy. But it's still not all the tapes. And so ultimately, this goes all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, Nixon is claiming executive privilege for this. And yet, Nixon is still defined to get the tapes, stop trying to get it out. He thought the transfers were up, made it work worse. Finally, the Supreme Court decides you have to give over the tapes. So when Nixon hands over the tapes, there's a very conspicuous 18-minute missing section which is almost certainly whenever one of the Watergate guys come in and they start talking about planning the break-in. Uh, Nixon's secretary claims she erased it on accident. However, when asked to redo the, you know, the motions of erasing it, she couldn't do it. Now, this is starting to look like impeachment city. Um, it's pretty clear the president has done all sorts of bad things, trying to cover up a crime. You're often going to hear of Watergate. It wasn't the crime, it was the cover-up. That's not too unusual to talk about this. Uh, Nixon is really looking at uh, impeachment. He wants to fight it. However, Republicans tell him, look, you're not going to have the votes. Uh, You're not only going to be impeached, you don't have the votes in the Senate, you will be removed from office. So what Nixon does instead of being removed from office, and also he wants to not have the humiliation of being impeached, uh, Nixon resigns the presidency in 1974. Two years after a massive Electoral College victory, uh, Nixon resigns. This is ironically not in the Constitution. <laughs> the Constitution says a lot of stuff about if a president dies. It says nothing about what happens if a president resigns the office. Uh, pretty much he just signed a piece of paper saying, hey, I resigned the presidency, effective tomorrow. This does not help the country, who is now deeply distrustful of the federal government. Uh, and more willing to question authority. So even though Nixon got elected saying that he's going to restore trust and law and order, he has actually quits the presidency because of issues with law and order. Now, the person who becomes president is Gerald Ford. Now, what's interesting about Gerald Ford is that he was not Nixon's running mate in 1972. In fact, Gerald Ford has a distinction, which I'm probably going to ask you about in your final, of being the only person to become president who was neither elected president nor vice president. Now, why was Gerald Ford president, uh, vice president? Well, <laughs> in 1973, a year before Watergate, Spiro Agnew, who had been Nixon's vice president, resigned as vice president for a completely different scandal. Uh, Agnew was accused of taking bribes from defense contractors. And so Gerald Ford was um, brought in. Uh, Gerald Ford was kind of a no-name congressman from um, Michigan, 
if we go to one more. He, um, you know, he, he claims to kind of be a blue-collar guy. Uh, he was a college football store, a star when he was younger at the University of Michigan. However, he is just kind of a nondescript guy. Probably one of the best quotes about Ford is by Ford. Whenever he says, you know, I'm a Ford, not a Lincoln. Which is a fun little, you know, pun because, you know, the cars, Ford and Lincoln. But also this idea that, you know, he's not a Abraham Lincoln. He's not going to be a dynamic president. Uh, this really gets seen as to what Ford does within his first couple weeks of taking office. He um, grants a full, free, and absolute pardon. That's a quote. Full, free, and absolute pardon of Richard Nixon for any crimes he might have committed as president. Um, if you're president, you have immunity from crimes. However, once you're not president, all bets are off. And even though Ritson, uh, Nixon was resi resigned from office, this does not mean he is free from prosecution. And basically, Ford issues a pardon of Nixon for anything, even though he'd never been officially convicted of a crime. This pisses off everybody. Uh, even Ford's secretary of... Sorry, his press secretary resigns. Uh, he pretty much loses all credibility. It seemed as though the only reason that uh, he'd become vice president is maybe Nixon promised him, uh, you know, the presidency if he were to give a pardon to Nixon. Uh, Ford also had a very bad economy. Uh, the economy got really bad under Ford. Uh, Stagflation gets even higher. Um, inflation gets even higher. Shut up, Siri. Uh, inflation gets even higher. Unemployment gets really higher. Um, he doesn't really accomplish all that much as president. Still, as we get into 1976, um, he is somehow able to get the Republican nomination. He has a very strong primary challenge from Ronald Reagan, who, spoiler, is about to become president in 1980. Uh, the Democrats nominate Jimmy Carter. Uh, Jimmy Carter is a Southern governor from Georgia. Political outsider, he's also a born-again Christian, which we're going to talk about more mass class, next class. Uh, Carter does indeed win handily. But what, the thing I want you to realize is that a majority of the country doesn't vote in this election for the first time. There's a lot of disillusionment about Watergate. Uh, before Watergate, the federal government had fairly high approval ratings. Approval ratings for the federal government as a whole go down after this, and they've never since recovered. However, I'm going to end this one by some funny pictures of Gerald Ford. Go over a few more slides. Uh, one time, Gerald Ford fell off Air Force One. He was descending the steps of Air Force One, and he took a trip and he falled. This became uh, the kind of public image of Ford, a bumbling doofus. Likewise, you see a picture of him getting caught up in dogs or falling down on a ski slope. Um, SNL came about in the first time. Saturday Night Live came out first time. And Chevy Chase kind of made his uh, bones, kind of made his name for himself parroting Gerald Ford tripping over and falling over things. This malaise kind of sets the stage for what's going to happen. Uh, Jimmy Carter, as I said, he is a political outsider. Uh, Born-again Christian, we're going to talk about them more next class when we get into Reagan. He really says he's going to be a nice, clean, decent president. But what does he actually do? We'll talk about that next class. So for Dr. Tully, uh, have a good one.